Hey listeners, if you're enjoying Faith Reconstructed, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share it with someone who might like it. Okay, on with the show. Think back to when you were a kid. When you learned about something new, you wanted to share it with everyone. This isn't just for kids. Adults are just as excited to share about the new documentary or book or TED Talk that they fell in love with. Perhaps it's hyperfixation, but keying into something of interest that changes your thinking causes excitement. It scratches an itch for us that can feel so satisfying. Faith is no different. When we begin to reconstruct our understanding of God, introducing ourselves to new principles and perspectives is as eye-opening as it is exciting. So why wouldn't we want to share it? This step can be referred to as evangelism. This is a natural next step in our faith walk. However, as we've learned, we have a history of manhandling organic progress into institutionalized steps on a checklist. In this episode, we'll be deconstructing evangelism and reclaiming it as an outpouring of our faith. I'm your host, Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. In recent years, the term evangelism has had to confront some heavy baggage associated with its past forms. At this point, regular listeners will be familiar with how details of the Christian walk have become complicated and cluttered. Evangelism has begun to fit into this category. So a good starting point to ask is, what is evangelism? Yeah. So for me, evangelism is really, really simple. It's introducing people to Jesus. Um, That's it. This is Caleb Isley, founder of Humans of Adventism and is currently the digital content specialist for the Oregon Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He is also the co-host of the podcast How the Church Works and is the creator and host for the upcoming podcast Bridges Over Walls. It's introducing people to the, the good life through the way of Jesus. And I say the good life because too often evangelism at least in, in some of my experiences, it doesn't take into consideration that there is kind of a concept of the good life that you're inviting people to. This is Kevin Wilson. Though a pastor, he's better known as the Chai Guy, a TikTok sensation who found an unconventional way to share the gospel and confront difficult philosophical questions while showing viewers how to make the perfect authentic Chai. In contrast, like they think that maybe evangelism should be inviting people to accept a certain sense, set of beliefs rather than like a certain way of life. So I think that's why I said it's an invitation to the good life through the way of Jesus. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my working definition right now. And it's always changing. And you can ask me on a different day. It might change then. But this is kind of what I can, I can come up with right now. That's the blessing of growth. The deeper we immerse ourselves in our relationship with God, the more our understanding begins to develop. Deconstruction and reconstruction is a lifelong process, applicable not just to our faith, but to nearly every aspect of our lives. When we think of evangelism, we may picture tent meetings set up in the center of town with preachers loudly sharing their convictions, going door to door, handing out pamphlets, or walking up to people and asking if they know Jesus. These are conventional forms of evangelism that we're more familiar with. Some have been immense blessings that provided life-altering peace. Some have used evangelism as a punitive tool, preaching a form of tribalism with a join-the-good-side-or-you'll-be-sorry type of message. Though technically evangelism, the latter method isn't really introducing someone to Jesus, but to legalism. We allow our understanding of God to set the definition of evangelism— It becomes more nuanced, but it also helps us to distinguish merging definitions that are used synonymously, which is evangelism and discipleship. Yeah, I think evangelism and discipleship are different. I would say evangelism is more of like the transformational mind. But at the heart of evangelism, you are taking this message of Jesus and this lifestyle and this practice and this character, and you are introducing somebody in a way that's really transformative to their life. You can evangelize with tons of people throughout your life. Discipleship is a time investment 
along with somebody where you actually have this kind of back and forth relationship long term. And there can be a beginning and an end to discipleship too, but discipleship is kind of this, um, you know, it has kind of like a mentorship connotation to it uh, that evangelism might not. Ideally, to me, both are relational, uh, but discipling someone is is really spending that time and energy and life along with them. Evangelism could be the proclamation of the good life, the, the life of the kingdom, and what that looks like. And then discipleship is the apprenticeship, you know, in according to the lifestyle of Jesus. So it's a difference between a proclamation and an apprenticeship is essentially, I think, what comes to my mind as a core difference. And just because you're evangelizing doesn't mean you're discipling. And just because you're discipling also doesn't mean you're evangelizing. You have to kind of think through those definitions. And again, those things can hit different people differently. But also, like again, like what do we mean when we say we're doing evangelism? Because for a lot of people, it could mean proselytizing. Uh, and I think we need to kind of make a distinction between proselytization as evangelism and announcement as evangelism. So those two things also have to keep in we have to keep in mind as well because too often people conflate the two. In order to ensure that we don't conflate the two, let's define what proselytization is. It is the action of attempting to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another, or in other definitions, to induce someone to convert to one's faith. On the surface, this seems like it's the same as evangelism. However, at its core, it's not. We cannot convert someone through agendaed info dumping. In fact, we cannot convert anyone at all. As humans, that's not our job. It is the work of the Holy Spirit alone to change the heart and mind of someone towards Christ. This is a very fine line to walk because, in retrospect, this entire podcast could be seen as proselytization. But what determines evangelism is the motivating intention. If it is an us-versus-them type of motivation, once again prescribing to tribalism, then things will become pressured. There's a goal, a focused aim that has an agenda which aims to control another person's response. The aim of evangelism should be to share the goodness of God by simply living that goodness. Have sermon series, host Bible studies, small groups, parties, share the gospel on your social media with your friends, with strangers, but share it to inform. Share because you have been blessed and are joyful. The rest is for God to figure out. Evangelism can mean being patient with the waiter when the food is slow coming out because you know it's not his fault. It's helping the new mom who's still figuring out how to put the stroller in her car. These are acts of kindness that linger with people. Discipleship can mean having a one-on-one Bible study with a person who isn't quite a Christian yet, or answering your atheist or agnostic co-workers' questions when you go to work every day. It's a dedicated partnership of two people growing in their understanding together. Yet the rigid definition that evangelism means we must get someone to quote-unquote our side through specific methods has limited the effects and impact. When I hear the word evangelism, I'm taken back to the church I grew up in. From the age of 4 through 18, I belonged to the exact same church with the exact same pastor. And I have sat through dozens of evangelistic series, but all really had a lot in common uh, for me. They were all done by an older, you know, straight white conservative Adventist man. And they all relied heavily on scaring us into decisions. And so, you know, there would always be a nice night, you know, where it's like a, hey, how are you? Okay, now let me take you through a timeline. Let me show you where we're at in Earth's history. And if you do not change now, you will be lost. That kind of summarized just about every single evangelistic effort that I encountered until my mid and late 20s, early 30s. So it was kind of this canned thing. And and what was so absent from it was relationship. When I hear the word evangelism, even today, in theory, it's not something that bothers me at all. If we're talking about introducing people to Jesus, I'm all about it. If we're talking about how our lives can be transformed in a way that shows that to our community, that we become more loving, that we become more healthy, um, I'm all about it. And and I want to actively share um, how that happens in a life. But when I hear the word evangelism, those aren't the things that I naturally think of. 
um, I hear kind of the evangelism TM, right? Like the uh, the word that has been hijacked and used for the exact opposite of what I want to be about. I don't want to scare people. I actually believe that people shouldn't ever go to church out of obligation at all. It should be something that we should create these spaces that people want to keep coming back to, right? That is so important and, and relevant to our lives that this is something we seek out. Without realizing it, we are still perpetuating the ideology of the medieval church. Humans are ultimately motivated by two things, love and fear. After the fall, it isn't surprising that we have minimized the impact of love, since according to 1 John 4, 7, 8, and 16, God is love, and the entrance of sin prompted an active reversal of God's intent. As a result, fear becomes the sole motivator. The concept of hell is used to spur people into action, introducing them to such an environment of supernatural fear, Jesus becomes a life raft. Yet even that is presented as a fickle option because if you don't act right, you're going to end up in hell, with God disappointed that you missed the very narrow mark of his good graces. We make God a last resort rather than an intentional choice. So there's kind of this conglomeration of issues that have come together, especially for evangelism, as I've experienced it in the Adventist church. When we rely on fear, what we're doing is kind of emotional manipulation. It's coercion. People will choose something that they don't understand and really won't try to understand it that much further a lot of times. They just don't want to be lost. They're either enamored with this vision of heaven and and this painless place and they want that reward, or they're so afraid of hell or their family being lost that they just will do anything to avoid it. And when you boil those things down, those are the most natural we're talking about the supernatural, but those are the most natural desires of the human, of, of any animal, is to seek pleasure and avoid pain. What's supernatural is that there's something more than those things, that Jesus is so great that whether hell and heaven didn't exist at all, I'd want to be with him. It's not to escape my life. It's because Jesus' character is the ideal existence that I want to be part of. It's selfless, it's loving, it's caring and compassionate. Those things to me are what separate us from the natural world and allow supernatural into our life. So when we're introducing people to that, I love evangelism. When we're scaring people into joining our churches, paying their tithe, you know, whatever, if the end result is it benefits us, uh, there's something else at work pressuring how we do evangelism than Jesus himself. I have seen some very well-intentioned Revelation series that didn't mention God or Jesus until the fifth or sixth session. Within this structure, salvation is only introduced in relation to damnation. Therefore, our Christian walk would simply be guided by the principles of not that. I choose heaven, not hell. I choose sobriety, not drinking. I choose abstinence, not casual sex. I choose Christ, not Satan. On the surface, this is good advice, but your faith is built on a shaky foundation of don'ts. Think of it as choosing a spouse. If given the option of two people, one loving and dedicated and the other manipulative and chaotic, you would hopefully choose the one that's the more loving and healthy option. But you should also be choosing them because of them. Because even if the other more chaotic person weren't in the room, you would still connect with and genuinely enjoy the company of the other person to such a degree that you would have chosen them independent of whether or not they had another person to compare them to. In the same way, we would be robbing ourselves of a deeper appreciation of Yahweh simply because we are trying to avoid the worst scenario. Growing up in Sri Lanka, evangelism was an event that everybody had to attend, whether you're a Christian or Adventist. You had no choice. You had to sit in those meetings. And uh, and so as, as a young kid, I, I didn't have the luxury of, of realizing that this is something that I could not like, or this is something that I would have a different take on. At the time, it was just life. It was just normal. Like this was kind of how we grew up in South Asia. So whether you're India, in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, wherever that part of the world, it's just, this is what we do, right? As part of being an Adventist. And then I took all of that stuff with me when I came to Andrews, 
I did a bachelor's in theology, did my undergrad, and then went through seminary. So seven years of theological training before I became a pastor. And in many ways, I would like to say that from the institutional perspective, from the outside, what was presented to me as evangelism is different or has changed. In some ways, it has. For the most part, uh, evangelism was mostly presented to me as kind of this zero-sum game where there are not only clear winners and losers, but one person or one group can win something only by causing another person or group to lose. Or they would have to like give up something in order to get this thing, you know. And in this case, the the group that, you know, quote unquote wins in evangelism are Adventists with the truth. And and those who lose are maybe non-Adventists without the truth. Uh, and so at least one of the difficulties according to this approach is kind of identifying like what the truth is, even within Adventism. For some, the truth is like a particular or theological imagination that is marked by an end time urgency. Like you have to, Jesus is coming soon, so you have to do these things. And for some, the truth is uh, a hyper focus on one theological belief, uh, while unintentionally or intentionally marginalizing the rest. And for some, it might be a, a commitment to return to a certain era of North American Eurocentric Adventism. That's what maybe the truth is for some people. And for some others, it's maybe like a, a specific, you know, theological or sociological framework that distinguishes us from them. Like we do these things, those people do those things. And evangelism means we have to stick to these things and not do the things that those people do. Throughout this podcast, I personally have chosen not to have denomination be a major factor in the discussion. However, at this point, we cannot ignore the reality that large portions of the Adventist World Church has fallen into this mindset. Because we open the conversation with diet, Sabbath, sobriety, state of the dead, and the revelation, we are at risk of introducing people to Adventism before introducing them to the very reason why we would be inclined towards those things. Unintentionally, we often put minor truths such as the Seventh-day Sabbath, jewelry, and coffee consumption above the core truth of the gospel. If we make our faith a hammer, everything becomes a nail. I also remember uh, as a theology student, uh, there was this visceral fear that if I didn't talk about Jesus all the time, uh, whether it's something that I put on social media or uh, something that I say to somebody else uh, when they come to visit me, or if at any point, like my conversations in my life is not overtly mentioning either the name of Jesus or the presence of God, then I am somehow delaying the second coming of Christ to the earth. That somehow that second coming of Christ is ultimately predicated on my sharing of the truth. And the, the scriptural kind of basis for this is Matthew chapter 24, where people, you know, it says, and the gospel should be, will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so as a, as a theology student, as a seminary student, I was like, man, I need to, uh, I need to, I need to just talk about Jesus all the time. Otherwise, Jesus is not going to come. If at any point we believe that salvation rests on our shoulders, it's works. When we see evangelism as an attempt to bring people on the winner side, then we place the salvation of another person on our ability to communicate the imperative nature of salvation on our shoulders. Christ already did the work. The gospel has been spread. Our job now is to present a correct image of Christ. There's another layer to this. Do you remember in our relationships episode how when we don't address our own problems, we're destined to pass them down? That can happen with evangelism. When we don't confront the hidden forms of legalism in our own faith, we are doomed to pass that down to the recipient of our evangelism, perpetuating a cycle of misinformed faith or isolating others who could have been immensely blessed. So if being pushy or self-righteous is our predominant image of evangelism, we can hesitate in taking part. I feel like this is an elephant in the room across our church, is that you asked, did it limit your desire to evangelize? I work for an Adventist conference, and you see kind of these big efforts to, you want to pull in the whole city, right? You want to you pack your church with your evangelistic series. And very often, 
you get a couple pews, right? Like the intent versus the results are very different. But you're touching on something when you asked, did it limit your desire to evangelize? Absolutely. Even to this day, if I see a certain looking sign or I see certain names of evangelists, it's not that I'm apathetic in not inviting people to those. I will actively not invite them. Like I, it's, it's a choice to not invite people, especially people that I love, to something that is going to be based on fear and that is not going to represent God as I know God and isn't going to be centered on Christ. I relate to this fear. When introducing Christianity to those unfamiliar with it, or worse, those who have experienced deep pain from it in the past, you want to show them the most accurate representation of God through Jesus. But introducing someone to church and Christian resources can feel like Russian roulette sometimes. So many misconceptions are pervasive in our belief system that there is the desperation for them to meet the real Jesus— and actually leave better informed and blessed. We have this constant tension in the Adventist church of, you know, we need people to show up uh, to evangelistic series and you try to get all your church members to invite them. Well, a lot of people, it's, it's not just that they're lazy or they don't want to put in effort. It's that they don't believe in what's happening, right? Like there, there is not a, a picture of God that is compelling enough that they want to tell their friends about it. This is the profundity of Christianity and, yes, Adventism. We want the introduction to be a good one. Inviting someone to take a look at Christianity who may never have known Jesus truly is a fraught experience. You don't want the introduction to further any potential hurt or solidify their perception of the church as a judgmental institution who cares more about whether they wear jewelry than their spiritual well-being. The truth is... We not only try and police organic conviction, but when we raise minor issues such as diet, clothing, jewelry, etc., to the level of Calvary issues, saying that it could prevent their salvation, we make Jesus a petty savior, closing ranks around the truth much like those of the Jewish faith did in Jesus' time. The purpose of evangelism isn't updating our marketing to pitch a more PC Jesus, The purpose is to be authentic and scripturally grounded in our representation. If the representation is solely based on the larger narrative and the character of God, then it will be inviting and accurate in its introduction. The aim isn't to cut down the gospel or rebrand Jesus. The aim is to leave space for God to present himself powerfully and profoundly. Yet to get to that place, we have to remove the minor bits of advice that have been elevated to major truths and declutter through deconstruction and reconstruction. You talked about two moments, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction. And for many people, including myself, those two moments were not one and the same. I do remember clearly the the moment when I was in Berkeley, we were doing, it was part of what we call in seminary, field evangelistic school. Essentially, typically what actually happens during for, to, rec- to satisfy that requirement is for you to go into a church and partner with the local pastor and the church to, to conduct a 10-week revelation seminar. That's kind of typically what happens from the seminary. So myself and two other friends, we decided we're not going to do that. Can we, can we think about any alternatives? And so one, the alternative was for us to go to the University of Berkeley and hang out there for a couple of months and do evangelism there. And so as part of our evangelism in UC Berkeley, what we did was we, uh, myself and two of my friends, we held these boards called Free Intelligent Conversation. It started by one of my good friends, Kyle Emil. And so we just held this board at Sproul Plaza in Berkeley. And we'd hold it from like 10 o'clock in the morning to like 3 o'clock. And we would talk with different people and they would come, they'd be intrigued. What is this? And we'll talk, hey, this is a free intelligent conversation. We just want to have a chat. Either you give us a topic to talk about or we will provide you some categories to pick from. You choose a topic and we'll have a conversation about anything. It was crazy. Conversations would would range from like two minutes before someone goes to class or sometimes it could even go up to like an hour. There was this one conversation in particular that wrecked me. So I can't remember her name, unfortunately. But as soon as she started talking, I was disoriented because you see this, she was a Caucasian woman with, with a hijab on. 
And then when she started talking, I thought maybe she's Syrian, Lebanese, or Middle Eastern. No, she was born and raised in America, in the Midwest. She was a Lutheran, but left the Lutheran church. And now she became a Muslim, and she also identified as queer. And so we started talking about different things. And then we started talking about Jesus. When she talked about Jesus, up until that point, I hadn't heard anybody talk about Jesus with such emotion, with such beautiful language, with such passion. Jesus is the Son of God. Yahweh came to earth to die, to free us from the death of sin. Christianity was created to be the sole framework of true peace and freedom for us to understand God, ourselves, and others. Too often, we forget the organic, deeply emotional response to studying the truths about the gospel and the introduction to the divine image of a God who wants to build a relationship with us. Over and over in our deconstruction and reconstruction of the topics from the season, we were confronted by the institution of a formulaic approach to Christianity. Sometimes, the best form of evangelism is simply being so in love with Jesus that everything else is secondary. The deconstruction process for me happened over all through my late teens, early 20s was kind of the time where um, I basically gave up on the organized church for several years, didn't step foot in a church hardly at all for four or five um, and and stopped going, but maintained my Adventism and like religious practices of, you know, prioritizing health keeping the Sabbath, you know, all of these things were really important to me. But the organized church uh, not only had lost its value, it, it seemed like an obstacle between me and God. And so that was an act of choice. But I think I think if I were to boil it down, what started making faith as I knew it fall apart was that I had grown up, you know, near Indianapolis, very, very white town, uh, to the point where if you saw a person of color walking on the street, people would comment that there was someone there that wasn't white. It was so abnormal. Even like conservative Christianity was kind of the norm. People might go to church or not, but still they believe that God exists. Um, They fought for Christian rights, prayer in schools, you know, some of these like buzzwords. It wasn't just popular. It was that you almost like as a kid, I didn't meet anyone who disagreed. Um, so it was kind of this ingrained thing. And and where things started to fall apart was when my world expanded and I started meeting people who were not part of kind of that closed little group of society. And I started asking, okay, what are the effects of what we say and how we do things on their lives? This applies to Christians and non-Christians alike. In an effort to stay comfortable, we stay in our bubble without engaging with people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different lifestyles, our perspective becomes one-dimensional and the concept of the quote-unquote other can become threatening or uncomfortable. From this, a superiority complex can develop, shutting down any attempt at furthering our understanding. Like I mentioned, this applies to those who identify as Christians and those who do not. Christ didn't simply meet people from different backgrounds— He had relationship with them and addressed them not as individuals who he needed to get on his side or as the other, but as his beloved. He came to earth as a man to meet them on a human-to-human level, rebuilding the intimacy that was lost when God and humanity walked together in Eden and then experienced the fall. Let's be clear. To have a relationship with someone who is of an opposing belief of yours doesn't mean you have to agree with them. But you do have to respect them and meet them on a human level. They may not agree with you, but remembering that Christ died for them too and that they are loved profoundly by God is a great equalizer. Sometimes we need to open ourselves to friendships with people outside of our regular sphere in order to enrich our own faith. A really important way that started happening was I started dating my wife uh, when we were 15 and 16 years old. And suddenly I am spending time in the house of immigrants who barely speak English. I am going to Spanish church. I'm seeing the dynamics between a Spanish church that's been kind of shoved into a separate building and given the the leftovers of the white church and seeing how they're talked about and treated, especially in times that they need financial help or, you know, help with things working in the church. 
there was this very clear, obvious discrepancy between what Adventism was doing for the church where I grew up and what it meant to most other people. I still felt like there were all these times where they were really demeaned and pushed to the side and secondary. And when you love someone, you don't want them to be secondary, right? And you don't want their family or, or anyone that they love to be secondary. You want them to be just as important. And that kind of snowballed as I started college. You know, we dropped out and got married, had this whole non-traditional path through college. But once I got to public college, here I am sitting at a, a study group where not one of us is the same religion. <laughs> you know, we've got somebody who's new age. We've got somebody who is raised Hindu. You know, we've got somebody whose dad basically believes in aliens, like all this whole range of people. And I remember this conversation in a poetry class with that study group where we just kind of went around and like talked about our worldviews. And it was, it was so non-judgmental when it came to me. And I started sharing, hey, I'm, I'm Seventh-day Adventist, we're Christian, but you know, things like health and, and the Seventh-day Sabbath are, are really key to how we see God and how we read the Bible. And so what was so impressive to me was the grace that was given to me uh, by my peers. They were interested, they asked questions, they never said, oh, that's weird, or we don't like you, or they were uncomfortable with me afterward. They made space for me. And I thought, how is it that it's not just someone who's not Adventist that's being kind and graceful, but this entire table of people who barely know each other? That's the norm. And yet I've hardly experienced this with my own church, talking about our own beliefs that are so similar sometimes with other Adventists. We had people fighting over wedding rings and cheese and the length of dresses, <laughs> despite being Adventist. Every sphere is going to be different. I've been friends with atheists and Muslims who have been curious and respectful of my faith. And I've also met atheists who disregard my faith as indoctrination. I've been in churches that actively fought having a micropantry because it would be quote-unquote too high maintenance and drove pastors out of ministry altogether. But I've also been in churches that would dedicate all Sabbath to volunteer ministry, creating safe spaces for people from all walks of life. In season two, we'll be addressing more about Adventism specifically, but this is an important observation that more and more young people are noting. If respecting the legacy of institutional traditions matters more than the gospel, then we are failing as Christians. Staying in our pocket is less and less appealing when the pocket itself is not creating a space for development and conversation, especially when it is unwilling to recognize the impact of unconventional forms of evangelism. The deconstruction of my relationship to the organized church is really, really one of the big changes. And then just believing that God is big enough for everybody um, and that God is not confined to the Adventist church. And that when I would meet people who are spending their weekends volunteering with the homeless population of Charleston every weekend, but never go to church, I see God in that. Every example of love and grace and compassion in the world, I started seeing God. And then I started turning back to my church and asking, do I see God there? And it wasn't really a debate in my head. The answer was no, I didn't. And going to church did not inspire me to be closer to God as much as being around these people who were actually alleviating some suffering in the world. So that's how it kind of fell apart for me. Rebuilding my relationship with the church has been such a specific journey. It's been a good one as well. But I think just finding people that cared about other people and seeing some of my peers being willing to push back against some of the wrongs that our church had done really drew me in. I mean, 2015, 2016, there's this whole wave of people that started saying, number one, we still want to be involved. But number two, we're not going to be involved in the way that you're saying. You know, we, we can see some ways to, to build this and do some good in the world and challenge our own church while still being part of it. That, that really, along with several key people in my life, brought me back to a relationship with, with a religion. Uh, never lost my relationship with God. Ephesians 5.25 says outright, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. The church are those who have accepted Christ as their personal savior. And sometimes... 
those who have accepted Christ are people who have never engaged with institutional religion. Sometimes we get so caught up in tradition that the tradition itself is mistaken for the gospel. Though it can't just be limited to the younger generations, there is a louder and louder collection of voices, usually from the millennials and Gen Z, engaging in deconstruction. The practice of deconstruction is tricky without a framework. Say you just bought a house. In improbable scenario, I know, but bear with me. It's falling apart, but the bones show potential. So you take out the parts that are falling apart. Renovations are a gamble. You never know if in removing a small problem, you'll discover a bigger problem that was hidden, preventing the house to stand properly. The previous construction could have been shoddy work, or things could have been salvageable, but were lost because of neglect or poor application. The house is our faith, not God. Deconstruction shouldn't be seen as us destroying Christianity, but our poor application of it. There is a correct way to make a foundation and build a house that is safe and sturdy. Removing the molding insulation and making sure the house's foundation isn't being held up by a bucket are necessary steps to make room for proper reconstruction. This entire process requires risk. To examine our faith is terrifying and requires deep self-reflection. However, more and more of us must do it to get to the reconstruction— Realizing that we deserve a stable faith. If anything, God is the architect and contractor who is ignored in our original DIY efforts to build our Christianity. Those who are willing to take that risk are becoming more active in the return to foundational truths independent of institutional practice. I feel like people have kind of overlooked the risk uh, that a lot of us were willing to take. We've been willing to be uninvited places. We've been willing to quit working for parts of the church. We've been willing to move on or not support certain parts of the church. And that has affected our livelihoods. It's affected our certainty of a career path. It's, it's affected our lives heavily. But knowing that you are part of a whole movement of people who are willing to, to really prioritize Jesus, I think, I think it makes it less scary. Um, And I think it brings new life to the idea that you can have community with like-minded people and that you can have community beyond kind of your church walls. But it's been interesting over the past few years to see some of these kind of formalize and become accepted. When most of us started, we were getting a lot of hate mail. We were getting a lot of people who didn't like us. We were getting a lot of people that, that really were waiting for us to show up to challenge us. Evangelism, in many ways, is a form of reconstruction. It's meant to invite people to reevaluate and reflect on the tenets of their beliefs and consider another perspective. Getting back to sharing the basics of Christianity can seem unfamiliar or even dangerous if we've only engaged in a very specific form of evangelism, such as inviting people to sermon series or handing out tracts. However, when we get back to basics, we realize that evangelism can happen in daily life and simply responding to the pull of the Holy Spirit. Evangelism for me is simply showing up where God has already shown up, which is the understanding that even before you showed up in the world, even before you had the language and the, the to kind of describe your experience with God and the experience of the world, God was already there. In the beginning, God, right? The Holy Spirit has already been there. So evangelism is maybe showing up where God has already shown up, kind of partnering with Him instead of using Him to manipulate others into a certain way or a certain theological imagination, right? And so that's one of the thinkings that I took with me to my work uh, online. Kevin's online presence on his accounts, named Cross Culture Kev, are meant to be an intersection of culture and theology. One day he decided to share his chai-making process and his stories, and the youths of his church saw the potential, urging him to join the then-burgeoning platform of TikTok. Though hesitant, Kevin gave it a shot exposing screenshots of his chai video, doing voiceover, and posting it on TikTok. Three years and nearly 400,000 followers later, his presence in social media has been an unconventional but impactful method of sharing theology in an upfront way. As I was making chai, I realized that there were so many people who are benefiting from this. They're just saying things like, this made my day, or I needed to hear that. Or 
you've inspired me to revisit my roots, things like that. And so in my mind, as a Christian pastor, I was like, wait, is that evangelism or is that something else? I had to really redefine what evangelism meant for me. And so over time, I realized excellence itself in your craft, in your life, is evangelism. That excellence is not just a thing that you do to get other people to get to Jesus or God or Adventism or whatever it is, but you being faithful to what God has given you, you being faithful to the your giftedness, you being a faithful steward to who you are and your identity, that itself is evangelism. Reconstructing our concept of evangelism is more than just reevaluating the methods of our process, but the end goal itself. Should we be more progressive and innovative in our evangelistic methods in the modern world? Yes, absolutely. But all of that is going to be heavily influenced by our end goal. So what is the end goal of evangelism? The surface answer is, of course, introducing people to Jesus. But what does that look like? Are we looking for baptism? Is the goal getting them to church? Is the goal watching them have a 180 experience and becoming totally convicted by the gospel? The answer is yes to all of them, but we have to acknowledge that the effects of our evangelism occur on a sliding scale, and all of them deserve a hallelujah. If we have a neighbor who hates Christianity with a passion, but at the end of being neighbors for a couple of years and observing you as a complex, loving, grace-filled individual they respect, then they may begin to reevaluate and soften their stance on Christianity because you displayed an example they could refer to that challenges their hostile misconceptions. In the end, they may never come to church with you. They may not want to come to a Bible study or even become a Christian. Or even become close friends with you, but you open the door to deeper reflection. If our only metric of evangelism are baptisms, we may forget to celebrate the small moments where people were introduced to glimmers of the Holy Spirit and risk turning evangelism into a numbers game where official conversions become widgets. In the end, our job is to represent a nuanced version of ourselves as proud children of God, allowing the Holy Spirit to do the rest. I'm focused on building bridges, and I think moving forward for Christian content creators, I think it would benefit us to focus our efforts on building bridges as opposed to building bunkers to protect us from them. And uh, the latter is gonna doesn't take much work. Right? You can just say something, Christianese, you can use those terms and say something, and you'll imme- immediately build a bunker against, quote-unquote, those people. Building bridges is going to take time. And so the pressure and the temptation that Christian content creators could avoid moving forward is to resist the temptation to, to put, put out sound bites. Instead of building bridges, they're building bunkers for, for the sake of views and likes. Interestingly enough, Kevin is sharing the thesis of Caleb's upcoming podcast with the Oregon Conference. In his show, Bridges Over Walls, Caleb connects with members of the larger community asking them to show how the church can be more active participants, speaking with mayors, nonprofit workers, and a collection of guests who are both believers and non-believers. Then a dialogue can emerge, with practical insights on the needs of the community and how Christians in the area can actively meet that need. In this way, the church can be a productive presence, returning, as Caleb will be pointing out, to a more scriptural model of the church. When you talk about how to do this in the modern world, what we're really talking about is comparing now to a relatively short period of time in the past. Kind of the old way when people talk about it, they're really talking about like the European way or the early American way, right? But to me, what the modern world needs as far as evangelism is not that much different from what they needed or at all different from what they needed when Jesus was here. So in my mind, we're getting back to the older way, (laughs) like the original way of Jesus, right? So this isn't a new concept at all. But what I have seen in my journey, you know, if you trace back kind of what I've shared here, I was changed by what and who I was exposed to, right? Completely. I grew up a certain way because of what the adults in my life told me, what my friends said, what jokes I heard, those kinds of things. Every decision I made was limited to what I knew. So exposure to a way of life 
uh, can open up an entirely new future, an entirely new pathway for somebody that may not happen in one conversation, right? My shift in kind of how I approach my faith didn't happen overnight. It happened over, uh, over a decade, over my entire life. So when I think about evangelism, I've even changed how I read Jesus. So when I read the stories of Jesus, I, I really notice how he approached and treated people. Um, how did he start those encounters? And a lot of times he wasn't going and just like preaching a big, long message. He was actually, he would start with a question, uh, especially in one-on-ones. Uh, he would start with something so specific to somebody's life. Who is sick that you love, right? Uh, what is your situation? Why are you here? These very simple, like get to know you questions. And he embodied something that people wanted to be around. Uh, it wasn't through like great preaching all the time. It was who he was. Uh, and so to me, something that's really important is that I live in a way where people see Jesus through my actions, through what it feels like to be around me. And to me, that's a really important kind of evangelism. And maybe the most important kind of evangelism is that someone is exposed to a new way of life and a new way of thinking that opens a possible hopeful future for them. This is a model we're called to follow. Jesus didn't live the way he lived for the sake of proving a point. Once again, this is meant to be an organic result of building a relationship with him and doing our own study, and then building a strong community for connection. I've spent, until the past year or so, most of my life around people that aren't Adventist in my adult life. And what's really cool to see is whether they, you know, convert to my religion or not, they do rethink their view of God. They do rethink their style of living. I worked in an industry where people worked 70, 80 hours a week, and that was standard, normal for several years. And when I would hold fast to my Sabbath, no threat could change it. No offer of money could change it, right? And so kind of the carrot or the stick didn't work. You know, I said, basically, fire me. <laughs> and and while that didn't make any new Adventists that I know of, it did change how people thought about their health, how they thought about their relationships with their family, how they thought about a God that actually cares about them, doesn't just demand from them. And how I presented the Sabbath in those situations was not, I'm afraid of going to hell. It was not, I'm afraid of punishment from God if I don't keep the rules. It was that God at the beginning of time, at the beginning of our existence, carved out a time, and he said, you can have this forever, in perpetuity. You can have your Sabbath. No matter what's going on in your life, you deserve rest. And from the life that I've had, anyone saying I deserve rest for any reason was so, so valuable to me, and especially in the area where I was. That was the first time a lot of people had heard that around me. So how I personally build relationships and go about my relationships should always be something where people can see Jesus in that interaction. And to me, I think that's true evangelism. Um, Yes, it's very helpful to me to have a prophecy timeline. Yes, it's very helpful to have a working story of the world and my existence. I think those things are important. But the transformation of the heart comes from being exposed to something beyond what you've understood and what you've felt before and encountering a new, deeper kind of love than you've ever experienced. And so I spend the most time and energy thinking about how I can exemplify that uh, rather than how I can coerce or talk somebody into a head acknowledgement of my theories. How do I be a way that I, I want people to be? A major facet of evangelism is how we treat people. If the theology doesn't affect our sociology, then the impact of our beliefs are lessened. Rather than following structures, we need to open ourselves to the motivation of the Holy Spirit, answering the needs as a group of individuals, not as an institution. In this way, we are following the principles of our faith and upholding the intent of Christianity as found in the early church. This is interesting. In AD 165, okay, there was an epidemic that hit Rome. And according to some scholars, like a quarter of the third of the population died. And then almost a century later, another epidemic hit. And at its height, 5,000 people per day were reported to have died in Rome itself. And it was even higher in rural areas. While the pagan non-believers were terrified and agitated about what was going on, the early Christians 
they were not terrified. Uh, at the height of the second pandemic in, in AD 260, a Christian bishop Dionysus writes that Christians were not only taking care of just themselves, but also taking care of other people. He, he said that while the Romans pushed sufferers away, throwing them onto the roads before they were dead, treating uh, unburied corpses like dirt, the Christians faced the pandemic head on. The Roman Emperor Julian wrote a letter to a Roman high priest saying this about the Christians during the pandemic. He says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, he's talking about their priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. And then he also wrote that the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. The reason why Christianity just took off was because fundamentally the way of Jesus completely transformed society, Western civilization as we know it. People were wanting to become Christians because they realized that it was the, one of the very, very few places, if not the only places, where women and men and Gentiles and Greeks and atheists, agnostic, all these different people can come together and worship this deity. They were like, sign me up. Luke Ferrier, a French historian, he writes this in, in his book, The Brief History of Thought, and he basically says that without Christianity or without the way of Jesus, without Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we would not have these modern notions of democracy and justice and law and all these different things. And so somehow something changed, right? And we come to our time right now and we're like, what is evangelism? Okay, I think maybe we're overcomplicating it. Your life, your lived experience, whether online or offline, can be the best evidence of, of evangelism there is. And because you are sometimes the only letter or the only Bible that someone will ever read. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. The suggestion to simplify doesn't just mean evangelism, but our faith as a whole. When we simplify, we have a greater foundation to live our faith. Evangelism is the outpouring of the peace and joy we've experienced in our relationship with God. We are called to build communities, yet the starting point can be a microscopic moment that has a macroscopic impact on another person's life. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of Faith Reconstructed. It has been an honor to explore these topics with you and to engage in these discussions. Whether you are Christian or Christ-curious, I hope that you feel this reconstruction has helped you. As I said, my goal isn't to convert you, but to hopefully prompt deeper examination of your relationship with God. This isn't the end of our examination. I am thrilled to return for season two, where we will continue our reconstruction. I have been your host, Nicole Dominguez, and it has been a privilege to join you in Faith Reconstructed. An Adventist Learning Community Podcast.